You're listening to the Prof. Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Podcast. If you're an aged care professional, you can connect with us at the Prof. Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Facebook group. Otherwise, you can connect with us at our regular page at Prof. Joe Online. You can also visit our website at profjoe.com.au for a collection of all our links. Also, feel free to email us at info at profjoe.com.au. Welcome. Welcome to the Prof Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Podcast. In this podcast, our guest is Dr. Nicola de Savary, a medical specialist at Oxford University Hospitals in the UK. In this podcast, we will explore with Nicola her experiences and the lessons to be learned from what has occurred in the UK and how that might apply to Australia. Welcome, Nicola. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hello, yes, thanks very much. So I'm a consultant geriatrician in the UK and also a consultant in acute general medicine. And I work in, as you said, the Oxford University Hospitals, which is various different locations. I'm also a member of a trust medical ethics committee, which has been particularly active during this time and keen to represent our older population when I sit on that committee. What it might do, Nicola, is, yeah, let's say in the week or the two weeks leading up to the first case of COVID-19 in the UK, what was the nature of the preparations that you were involved with? Well, for lots of people, we've been fortunate in that we weren't the first country to get it. So we all watched China deal with it. And then as it came across Europe, Italy and Spain have generally been a couple of weeks ahead of us. And obviously it hit so quickly, particularly in Italy, that we really were encouraged to organise ourselves in a hurry for what was expected to be a a critical surge. Through the Ethics Committee, this was a very big time for us. We were lucky to have an Ethics Committee established. And the real push, the initial consult that we did was for the intensive care doctors. And I think the whole onus was on provision of level three care, worrying about shortages of ventilators and intensive care beds. So so level three care in the UK and Australia would be considered as high dependency or intensive care and ventilation. And do you recall the day that you first looked after someone that had a COVID-19 infection? For me, my first patient was quite a young gentleman in his 50s who presented with typical viral symptoms and and an oxygen requirement. His only risk factor was that he'd been to the theatre in London the preceding week, which is where we think he probably caught his COVID because London was a real sort of hub of it at that point. And he was unwell. And I was working that evening a shift in a district general hospital in the north of the county. And he needed transfer to the big hospital in case he deteriorated more and would need, as you said, more interventional high dependency type treatment. And it was that feeling of, here we go, now it's started. You know, this is my first patient. I've seen what it looks like, a sort of sense of doom and worry, I suppose. And this was a young man who was going to need extra support and and obviously aware of in older people, how are we going to manage that? And what was the response of the staff around you? Were people rallying or were they frightened? I think in general, there's been an amazing sense of camaraderie, actually. I think maybe people are getting a bit tired of it in the last week or so. 
but there was an amazing sense of good spirit, people keen to help, concern about PPE, the protective wear, and whether we had enough and how to put it on and you know how to manage all of that. That was a whole new thing for us, who, for those who aren't infectious diseases specialists. But generally, there was a real sense of we're going to rise to this challenge and people working together, I think. And with your experience with using PPEs, how much extra work or time does it add to your day or using the PPEs? It's very tiring. And I'm only talking about most of the time level one PPE, which is for us in the UK, just a mask, a pinny and gloves and maybe goggles as well. But just putting that on for every patient, changing between patients and that constant checking of have I washed my hands at the right time? Should I listen to this person's chest or do I really need to? Will it change what I do? And that increases the chances of me then transporting COVID around with me. Is it the mental fatigue or the physical fatigue you think is worse? I think really it's mental. I mean, it's not that strenuous to push it on. I think for the level two, just this last week, I had a patient that, who was on non-invasive ventilation and so needed to have level two PPE, which is then with the full gown and the visor and, and sort of more, more layers to it. That is exhausting and gets very hot. And I, I think for colleagues who work in intensive care, it, it's really exhausting physically wearing all the kit. For us in level one PPE, I think it's more mental than physical. Uh, Nicola, could I ask a question there as well? You mentioned the ethics committee and you were meeting the ethics committee a lot early on. Maybe give us some insight into what kind of ethics issues were being discussed at this stage. So we were really discussing pandemic ethics, thinking about service being overwhelmed and how to allocate resources. And from looking at experiences in Italy, that that had been left to individual clinicians on the ground floor. So I think there was a keen push to try and make sure that we had a decision-making process and guidelines and something to make it consistent, transparent and removed potentially from the actual frontline clinician. And you also mentioned earlier advanced care planning was part of that kind of discussion? Yes, I think in the beginning what you're really trying to work out is who is more interventional care going to make better. And that's very difficult then I think when you're trying to make when you're admitting patients to work out whether you think non-invasive ventilation would benefit them or not. And also what I found particularly challenging as the cases ramped up was when you first met the patient, they might not be that unwell. And a lot of people with COVID are actually quite hypoxic, so have low oxygen levels without sometimes being that aware of it. Their saturations can be very low and their respiratory rate is high. But unlike some other medical conditions, they're still able to talk to you and they don't seem to be that bothered by it. They're not as unwell as you'd think. And you're having to have conversations about the hypothetical future of would they want to be considered for non-invasive ventilation, ventilation, resuscitation. You know you have to have that conversation early because they may deteriorate quickly, but they're not aware that they're that unwell. And in your first interaction, it's very challenging to then say, and I don't want to resuscitate you. Or, you know, obviously that's not what you're saying, but to be feeling like that. If we take you now to your first visit out to a care home where someone had COVID, 
what was the reason for the call out and what did you find when you went there in terms of both the resident or patient and the staff's concern and preparedness? So I don't normally in my normal practice go out to a care home. I'll talk to GPs reviewing a patient there or the care home managers or a paramedic there, but I won't usually go there. They'd need to come to hospital for me to see them. But because of our concern that things have been rationed and perhaps our angle was slightly skewed, we were then very concerned what was happening in care homes. And care homes had really shut their doors to try and prevent COVID getting in. The GPs aren't really going to the care homes in our area. They're doing video consults. But we went out, they're a care home who had just had three deaths in a couple of days before we went from COVID. They have about 40 residents and they'd had three deaths in a day, which I think was, uh, you know, a, a challenge to them. They now have PPE. They were a very well-managed home and, and they're doing well. But there was definitely a view that people that potentially would benefit from hospital care are not necessarily getting into the hospital and getting that level of care. And telephone medicine is being done where the GP or the paramedic will ring us up in the hospital and say, this person has deteriorated, they're more breathless, what do you think, you know, we're planning to palliate them or whatever. And they could have deteriorated and become breathless with anything. We don't know if it's COVID or heart failure or urinary tract infection, or as we all know, old people present in a very difficult way sometimes to know what's going on and that diagnostic uncertainty and then the knock-on effect on the management plan it really struck me as concerning that there may be lots of reversible things going on that we could easily manage and make better. In Australia we're, we're no better off than the UK it's the GPs that are relied upon to provide the care and some of the acute hospital services provide a, an ambulatory or in-reach service which was originally designed to avoid or reduce the number of older people presenting to the emergency department. Do you have a sense of where was the reservation coming from about seeking acute hospital care? My original concern when I take the calls for referrals a lot of the time being ambulatory and when I'm on call was to bring in an elderly person who perhaps doesn't have COVID and has heart failure or COPD or something as the cause for their current deterioration, the the risk of them giving them COVID was really great. And I think it's still anecdotal, but I think it will be shown when the data is looked at that definitely in our hospitals, a lot of the people that we were admitting, particularly at the beginning with COVID, had been in hospital two weeks before, and that was where they caught their COVID. And then if older people in their 80s, 90s catch COVID, as you know, the mortality risk is huge. And you may then, by bringing someone into hospital, putting them in a bed next to someone with COVID, and they then catch COVID, they may have a 25% chance of dying. So that's an incredible risk to have resting on your shoulders. So there was that concern that you didn't want to give it to people by bringing them into hospital. One of the concerning things we've seen here in our small experience of COVID in in care homes is the reciprocal idea of someone stays in the home with suspected COVID or not even COVID, an atypical presentation, doesn't go to hospital, and then, of course, then gives it to a large number of people in the, the actual care home. 
So is, is one of the solutions we've been flagging here to have a kind of a clean, firstly, a clean hospital system set up for people where you don't have COVID in aged care that we can send people to that facility. Another thought we've had is if someone's confirmed COVID, should they be transported to an aged care facility where everybody has COVID? These are things we've been debating locally. Do you have any views, if you could go back in time, what could happen? I think some of the difficulty for us is knowing whether someone has COVID or not. So as we've all discussed, it presents atypically. The swab tests can take for us two, sometimes three days to come back. We don't have a point of care testing available to us in our trust. And the swab testing is unreliable. So my understanding is for a lot of people, there's quite a narrow window when pharyngeal swab is positive. And we've all had lots of cases where we know clearly this person has COVID, but repeated swabs are negative. So So you're left in that situation where it's very difficult to know for sure whether someone has COVID or not. If you knew who had COVID and who didn't, then it would be easy to send them to those hypothetical units. But until you know that, it's still very challenging and streaming that people as to whether they should be green, amber or red is very difficult. What we're planning to pilot is ambulatory physicians going out and doing on-site assessment of patients in person, not sort of video medicine, and assessing the patient and doing point-of-care blood testing, which would give you some of those clues. And actually what's been found in acute medicine is lung ultrasound is very very helpful in making the diagnosis of covid it has a very characteristic appearance and lung ultrasound can then let you know if it isn't covid that it's heart failure or a pe or or something else so we're going to try a pilot obviously in a very small scale at the moment but if ambulatory care physicians and specialist nurses getting experience of going out to care homes and trying to then do these diagnostic tests to try and then help know whether this person needs hospital or needs palliation or what they need and actually trying to provide more of the hospital type care in the care home so with oxygen concentrators providing oxygen intravenous fluids once a day intravenous antibiotics which is the routine for covid patients in hospital as well and that actually perhaps for a lot of frailer old people really the best care could be delivered in their room in their care home just two questions flowing from that Uh, One is the kind of committee that decides these protocols. What is that comprised of? Who's on that committee over where you are? So we have paediatric palliative and adult palliative care consultants. We have quite a lot of specialist nurses. We have a lot of, we have oncology physicians and nurses. We have an ethicist, a theologian. The thing that we are missing is a lay representative or, as you say, family, or we will um, provide a consult group most of the time. During COVID, we've been more involved in providing policy documents about decision making, I suppose, just to support for that. But we don't have, yeah, we don't have patient representatives at the moment. Just the second question on what you were talking about before, you mentioned the atypical kind of presentations in the older population. Can you give us some examples of what you've seen? Yeah, sure. I think COVID in older people can present In any way, it can present with falling over, uh, which lots of medical conditions in older people present with, you know, going off, someone going off their legs, falling over, not being able to get up. It presents quite often with delirium in older people. Delirium is definitely a feature of it. 
I've had a few patients who've come in with abdominal pain, a couple of weeks of abdominal pain, perhaps diarrhea. Uh, two of them I remember because we did a CT scan of their abdomen to check that there was nothing going on intra-abdominally. And the lower bit of the lungs that the scan caught showed quite clearly COVID. There was no respiratory features, no particular fevers, nothing to have at that point suggested to us that it was COVID. So it can present like with a pneumonia in an older person. If a younger person gets pneumonia, they get a cough and breathless and cough up some green stuff. In an older person, they may fall over and get more muddled, you know, and actually it's pneumonia that's caused that. So I think it's the same in COVID. It can present in many different ways in older people. And have you seen fever as a pretty sensitive sign or not? Does it fall away as well? Fever is pretty sensitive. It's obviously a fever that comes and goes. So you may have a record that they, the paramedic found a fever or you know there was a fever at home, but when they initially come to hospital, they don't have a fever. Then swinging fevers become, uh, yeah, definitely are seen commonly. Everyone has a slight sort of slump of we know what that means. That's probably going to be a poor prognostic marker for that person. Do you know, Nicola, whether that type of screening has been occurring in the care homes? We had a recent document out from our British Geriatric Society that was talking about care home patient residents and how to cope during these times. And their guidelines were all care homes should be able to do observations as a screening tool and to think about things like having oxygen in care homes for patients that become very breathless who've decided not to go to hospital and whether certain provisions in care homes should be made more available for things like that. It's interesting that there's a disconnect between policy and capability, I guess I'd say, is in Australia, 80% of the staff in a care home are personal care workers. So, So this assumption that care homes are capable of stepping up with no additional resources or training seems to have been quite widespread. And I wonder whether that's because so much of the community doesn't understand what resources are actually in the care home. Do you have a comment on that? I think, I'm not sure if it's the same in Australia. I'm sorry of my ignorance. In the UK, we have residential homes and nursing homes. And so residential homes are not staffed by nurses, anyone that's trained as a nurse, and are much less capable of coping with patients with more medical need, more nursing need. In our nursing homes, they, by definition, need to have, I don't know how many nurses but they need to have some trained nurses there they should be able to cope with more medical intervention in that way but I think suggesting that everyone there can take routine observations is not true at all. I guess one of the things about people in aged care homes is they don't have the ability to be in their own home and protect themselves so the the idea that they by definition have to live next to someone with suspected COVID or that's the tricky part for me. And they're, and they're very vulnerable. I think things have changed in that until really, I think, rather embarrassingly recently in our care homes, PPE was not being routinely worn. There's still big shortages. Our, our care homes are really struggling with it. The care home I went to have been very well, have been lucky and organised and managed and paid above the odds to get their PPE. And they're nursing everyone in level one PPE, which they wear 
sessionally for patients that they think are non-COVID, so they won't change the mask for every patient. But for the COVID patients, they'll change the whole PPE between each patient, obviously. And I think, you know, in, in hospital on a ward round, I will see some patients with COVID and some without. I'm hoping that I'm not spreading COVID to those different people. I know that hospital is a place of risk, but with good infection control measures and wearing PPE appropriately and washing your hands and that sort of thing, you you should be able to look after someone without spreading it. That's the goal. I think setting up somewhere as a middle ground that's either for COVID patients from care homes or non-COVID patients, I think it, it would be challenging. I don't know. I mean, I think because... First of all, you're going to be moving a, a group of people that will get disorientated and more likely to get delirious in that environment. And secondly, because of the streaming issue. We're seeing a play out of this ethical debate right now with our prime minister involved between locking down aged care facilities because of the propensity of it to spread within the facility, which is very damaging in terms of socially isolating residents from family. And we're seeing that contrasted with opening up, but we're seeing that potentially then it could really spread through and cause a lot of harm inside that facility. So in between is this idea that you're touching on, which is, you know, if we have at least a confirmed COVID aged care service, and we don't put everyone at risk, at least if we know that this person has COVID. And, you know, in terms of the rest of the community, if we consider that people in aged care are not far off an older person in the rest of the community, they have every right not to live with someone with COVID next door and they can move. And, you know, so it, it does feel a bit like that we are kind of potentially removing some rights from people that are living next to people with COVID because they have the inability to move. I completely get that. And I see, I see that injustice that you're thinking of. For us, the only option if you're to remove patients who are COVID positive is to go to a hospital. We don't have an intermediate care facility for that. In Australia, the push has been to have a single voice with one instruction that we all follow. What's been the situation in the UK, especially since we all know that Boris got COVID and was offline for a little bit of time? My concern has been the single voice has all been, as, as we've discussed, really focused on acute, high-intensity care. And that was where all the push was. And Boris was building his Nightingale hospitals for 3,000 people. I think, I think at most that one in London had 19 patients. It had the plan that it could go to either two or 3,000, I think, maybe 2,000. I think in Boris's absence, there wasn't sort of so much leadership and we sort of stagnated for a couple of weeks. And now we've come back in with this focus on testing and now beginning to think about these apps to do testing and and contact tracing. I think that's where we're going. But it's still, I think there was a marked realisation in the last couple of weeks that care homes had been completely neglected in terms of social care workers going to look after people in their own homes, in terms of PPE, training, support, swabbing, everything. I think in our care homes, they were allowed to do five swabs and then no more after that because that just proved they had it and then there was no need to do any more swabbing. So they were just completely overlooked in the planning and the deaths weren't counting in our daily morbid death toll. That wasn't including deaths in the community or in care homes. And there's been a, you know, an outcry in the last couple of weeks and that's now beginning to be included and suddenly they want to swab everyone that works in a care home and lives in a care home. 
a lot of these issues are to do with the environmental and architectural physical design of buildings and how many people are housed in the same space and what is the population density in a home. I think the pandemic should really make people think about the design. And I'm not sure whether, if I recall from the, my visits in the UK, many of the care homes were in old mansion, well, very stately mansions. Not fit for purpose. Yeah, look nice from the outside. No, I agree. And I, I think during this crisis, I can see a lot of colleagues who have more management roles are thinking about how they will be better changes for the future. And something like that coming out about the design, the architecture, the ergonomics, the feng shui of, of these kind of places, if we can suggest that this is a crisis that needs to make those changes happen in the longer term, they'd be much better. And I think in the same way as my thought about patients with dementia who do badly in hospital, when you're thinking of this middle facility where care home residents could go to a COVID positive care home facility type place, could that be a sort of dementia-friendly environment? Could that be somewhere then in the longer term that would be somewhere where those kind of patients who don't do well in hospital but who also shouldn't just be left to have a miserable demise in their care home and, and be really challenging for other residents as well? You know, will that middle place be good for that going forward? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly how we've been envisaging it. So staffing needs to be doubled, tripled for these people. So that just because you've got a, you know, 80% are going to get a mild illness, that 80% shouldn't have compromised care just because they're being isolated. So same with treatment. We would absolutely be advocating for a fully equipped dementia-friendly service. Now, this is a tricky question. You know, so say in a year's time, when we're looking back, how do you think people will judge the care that's been delivered and the attention that we paid to older people? I think there will be damning of what we did to our care homes and our social care staff. And I think in the UK, this has highlighted an issue which we've all been crying out for for years, that our health service should be joined up with our social care. And they're two separate things here. And this is, has completely illuminated that problem and that injustice not just for the patients, but I think also for the people that work in those two different departments. I have definitely felt the NHS has struggled, but I felt provided for, I felt that people cared, and I feel really terrible that people that work in social care who, who do these incredible jobs have been overlooked and, and not valued in the same way. Nicola, thank you for sharing those insights and those experiences. You've come up remarkably well, given how hard it must be and we can only admire your efforts and your courage in talking to us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's been really interesting. Thank you.